Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Hey friends, it's Paul from Connecticut and really excited for today's conversation. I'm not going to spoil a lot of it, but let's just say Aida Alston is a kindred spirit. She thinks super deep about taking different transitions in life and embracing the pathless path. She's early on a new journey, but she's gone through so much. She left high school at a young age and graduated college by 19 and then went to medical school in Cuba. She's since walked away from being a doctor and trying to figure out what it all means. It's a really good convo. She's super curious. She loves reading and gives a lot of great book recommendations. I linked those up, but I really, really think you're going to love this convo. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Aida Alston, who's had a fascinating life path uh, from testing out of high school at 15 years old to finishing college with no debt, then finishing medical school and doing it for free in Cuba all by the age of 24. Um, Today, Aida is going to talk about having everything you're supposed to want, and then still deciding to sort of walk away from that, trying to figure out what's next. She describes herself as an early and late bloomer. Excited to chat with you today, Aida. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's really, really nice talking with you again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So you've started sharing publicly, and I've been really excited to dig into your story because... um, I just feel like increasingly I'm talking to people who have things they think they're supposed to want and want to walk away. We're going to dive into that. Um, Want to start earlier, though. Like, What were some of the scripts you grew up with, um, maybe around work? And I think we've talked a bit about creativity. What were some of the scripts you grew up around that? Yeah, so my family, kind of on both sides, like both of my parents were very um, kind of non-traditional types in on, in their own right. And so we grew up with a lot of freedom around following whatever we thought was interesting. It was like from the very beginning, like, you want to do this activity? Oh, now you're done with this activity. You want to do this other thing? You want to do violin? Great, you're done with that. You want to do gymnastics? Great, you're done with that. Like we had a lot of freedom. You know, we would kind of be pushed to finish things, but it was definitely freedom to to change and and try something new and not a lot of pressure to like, you have to, go through this just because you started it and you have to, you know, finish it no matter what. And I remember, I feel like one of the earlier things, like 
I kind of in my head have this thing from high school, like high school was a really big defining moment of being able to follow something that I wanted to do that was not traditional. But when I think back, it was actually even earlier. One of the, the memories I have is my mom was a, is a physical therapist and she was doing a training in Hawaii. And so, you know, I'm from San Francisco, so it's not as bad as like coming from all the way from, from the East Coast out there. But we were going to go with her, my sister and I. And I was, I think, in sixth grade, the first year that she was doing it. The trainings that she would do were like a month long. And so, you know, she told my teachers, Aida's going to be out of school for a month. Like, there's not like a can to leave for a month. It's just like, Aida's going to be out of school for a month. You know, send her whatever materials you want and we'll be there and she'll be back. And she'll be fine. And you'll be fine. Like, everything will be fine. And that's just it. And so what I did when I went, I mean, I, I guess they gave me materials. I, I'm, I'm sure that they did. But I was excited to go find my own materials to, to bring while I was out there. So I remember at least one of them being like a, a Chinese math workbook. <laughs> it's like, ooh, this sounds really interesting. I'm going to teach myself like doing math in, with Chinese characters. And it was great to just be able to be out for the month and not feel like um, we were kind of missing something, that it was so dire that every single second had to be um, taken up and that we could also, you know, build in her work and build in our time while we were there. And even the next year when she went again, we actually chose to only stay for two weeks. <laughs> we're like, it's too long. <laughs> Staying a month is actually too long. So we need to go back. And I think since they had both left where they were from and had gone to San Francisco and were both around a lot of artists they were um they both did uh, tai chi together um in san francisco part of tai chi group in san francisco my dad taught tai chi and um was an acupuncturist and had been in musical theater they actually met in the theater house <laughs> my dad he was like when my mom moved to san francisco they were there um at the theater house and she moved in as one of the roommates so we were um always really encouraging like it was really encouraged to do something that was different so I carried that very strongly <laughs> moving forward until I guess high school was that, that that real turning point of now I get to actually decide on something and pursue it. That's going to be really different. Yeah. So your past so interesting because you grew up with the this tension of like the unconventional path and doing it at different ages. But at the same time, you were sort of increasingly opting into a more constrained path, right? Like yeah. becoming becoming a doctor at the age you did is pretty exceptional, but the doctor path attracts people that really want like a certain path in life. How did, yeah. so maybe like start with like, when was the first time um, you sort of like veered off um, the traditional path? Like it, you said you tested out of high school at 15, but was there yeah. something before that? I think that that was the real point when it started going more non-traditional. And I think if I, if I had gone probably to any other school, I probably would have stayed in some way or another. But the school that I went to is actually a really prestigious um, Jesuit school in San Francisco, or San Ignatius College Preparatory. And I had never been in private school. I had never been in uh, Jesuit school, definitely. It was the first time it was actually we got connected um, to it through our landlord. And I really had no idea kind of what that was. I had never hadn't really been around um, kind of that world in San Francisco. 
but it was really not a place that was very welcoming for me. You know, it was like, it was a very prestigious school. Like if you weren't there, you could kind of go to any college that you wanted to in, in the country. But at that time was when I started dancing. So I was actually a dancer and wanted to pursue that even more. I wanted to pursue that professionally. So I had that on, um, on the side always. And when I started to really have a really hard time with school in the, in high school, it was after ninth grade, I finished ninth grade. And by the time I got to the end of ninth grade, even my mom was noticing like Aida just seemed really depressed at this place. Like we either got to put her in another school or what other options kind of are there. And it was actually her who had done this research and found people who were doing unschooling. I mean, we were definitely late to the game if we were just finding this out <laughs> at, at high school, yeah. but we had, had never really heard about that. So people who are doing unschooling and other kind of non-traditional ways of schooling. And a lot of the p- kids who had done unschooling had taken this exam called the California High School Proficiency Exam. And so when we looked at it, it realized, oh, I can actually take that earlier than taking a GED. It's actually you know, easier than taking a GED and I can get out earlier and go straight to City College. I knew that as if I was going to be pursuing dance, that I wanted to at least have a college degree. I figured there's a lot of dancers that don't go in and don't um, you know, continue down like a you know, traditional path in that way. And I wanted to at least have that under my belt. But it was, I guess, two months into 10th grade when we really decided, like, I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And so I left in, um, in after two months of 10th grade and was out for the rest of the year kind of doing some unschooling activities. It was like getting into um, these uh, programs that were catering to high school age kids that were doing these non-traditional things like a nature study group. And there was like a hip hop performance group, um, and a theater group that I was in. And I took this exam at the end of that year. And what that gave me was the high school um, diplomas, the equivalency. And so I went to um, City College in San Francisco for two years and then wow. transferred down to, uh, to California State University, Long Beach. And I knew at that point that there were at least options. And I wasn't still quite sure like, what that would look like because I was still very much like, oh, this is, you know, I'm taking this kind of roundabout path, but I'm still going to do something that's very um, straight and, and narrow. And so I got down to Long Beach and decided that I actually did not want to pursue what I had first majored in. I was a fashion design major because I did so, and I wanted to dance professionally. Um, and I ended up switching my, um, my major to Black Studies, which in other places was called Af- Africana Studies or African American Studies. Um, and it was from there that um, I was kind of introduced to more values that I really wanted to express in some way and actually veered away from the dance. Um, and I still wasn't sure what that was going to end up looking like, but that's kind of where, where Cuba came in. Yeah. Did you, um, what was that like just being a different age than I imagine a lot of the people around you, even in that first college, I imagine it was more of a mixed age, um, yeah. community. Like, did you have a sense of like, I'm more mature than people my age or like, oh, oh, wow. What have I gotten into? Yeah. Well, at City College, it definitely just felt like high school. It was like people that I, you know, San Francisco is not a huge city. I mean, it is a big city, but now I'm in yeah. New York. So I'm like, it's not a huge city compared to someplace like New York. And 
you know, I kind of knew people that were there already. And so I, I was younger because I was 15, but there were still, there were kind of people of all ages. And so it kind of was easy to mix in. And the people that I, that I was in my dance group with, we were all kind of ages. So I was used to being around people that were older than me. And what I did realize was that I just wasn't going to kind of drag it out. It's like, I'm going to be here for two years, two years school. I'm going to be here for two years and I'm going to kind of move on. And so I was very determined about what classes do I need to take to make sure that I can get out and I can transfer because I don't want to kind of extend it three or four years um, at City College. I knew I just wanted to be able to graduate so that I could continue to dance. Yeah. So talk to me about starting to think about going to medical school. I know this involved a bit of hoop jumping, um, something we both um, have gained some skills in. But what was that like? Yeah, so I heard about the program through one of my professors in college. And it really had not crossed my mind before then. Like it hadn't, it hadn't, wasn't a thing that I thought like, oh, I'm going to, you know, be a doctor since I was five. I'm going to be a doctor since, you know, a young kid. And I knew that I was going to do this. It was like, I'm, this could be a way of expressing some of these values that and doing this kind of service back to, a, a community that I had been kind of surrounded by when I was in Black Studies. Except when I went to do the application, I realized, oh, you need to actually do pre-med. And I was like, oh, I don't actually have any pre-med done. So how am I going to get this? And I was like, I don't want to spend another two years to do pre-med, yeah. you know, another three years to do pre-med, to then go and be in, in med school for six years because it's a six-year program in Cuba. So I ended up finding um, a, it's a, it was a program that actually doesn't exist anymore in San Francisco, but it was made for people who are, um, who are trying to transfer into the sciences from some other field and that need to um, get their pre-meds done kind of in off hours. So it was two years worth of pre-meds down into eight um, months. And it was only on the weekend from, um, like, I guess Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? And Saturday, Sunday from like eight to five. It was like every day for those two years. I mean, for that, those eight months, get two years worth of, um, of, of work in. And so I got that done to be able to, to go. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't necessarily hoop jumping, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's kind of just like finding these loopholes. Like that's, that's kind of the, the word that kind of comes to mind. It's like finding a loophole. In, in like a traditional way, a traditional timeline, I guess that's the thing. It's like finding a, a, a non-traditional timeline for doing traditional things. Yeah, so it's yes. it's sort of working backwards saying, okay, how can I do this, but in the best way possible Yeah. Uh, for me rather than like having to take the traditional path. Does that impulse yeah. come from your parents and how you were raised? Yeah, I mean, I think I learned a lot from my mom about that. Um, you know, I remember one of the things, like when I graduated from college, she, there was a, I think it was Long Beach City College was hosting a um, study abroad program to go to Ghana for five weeks. And I remember seeing this flyer and was like, oh my God, I would love to do that. But, you know, the deadline has already passed. And so I guess, you know, that's just it. And she's like, oh no, call. Like, what do you mean? I didn't know. You always call. You always try. Like, there's always a kind of a way around something. So go and check. And it would, there was still opening and they're like, oh, yeah, totally great. I'm glad that you, you know, decided to do it and come along with us. So I think right. I got that from her. It's like always try it because it's not like I was inventing any of these things. Right. They were just there. It's just that they weren't 
you know, advertised necessarily. So people didn't know that that was an option that they could take. Yeah, that that's interesting. I think me and me and my wife have different default settings around this. Maybe it's an yeah. American thing to look for the loopholes, yeah. but um, I always assume everything's sort of negotiable. <laughs> And that sort of guided a lot of my path. And mostly I look at things that way to try and like expand my imagination for what's possible. Because I mean, there's just so many things like, oh, that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. And I think that it probably is a very American thing. Well, you know, being able to kind of find ways around, um, around traditional (laughs) kind of constraints for, for better and for worse, you know, it's like, it, it brings a lot of, of innovation and people trying out new things, but um, there's also no scripts for how to do that really either. So at, at 19, you're in medical school. How? Yeah, well, I guess by the time I got there, I graduated college at 19. And so there was a year where I was working in between. I worked for, a, between going, it was like I worked for a time and then um, at a nonprofit in, in Oakland and then um, was doing the pre-meds. And so by the time I got to Cuba, I was 21, about to turn 22, yeah. And Cuba has a reputation for having a pretty good healthcare system. What was yeah. your experience of that? Yeah, so the Cubans, I mean, that's the way that I had heard about it even was in regards to their medical, um, you know, it's like medical diplomacy, really. Like this is one resource that they've had for a long time is their medical system and their, and their doctors. And so they're able to share with other and, and trade with other countries based on the resources that they had and, and medicine and, and training doctors and sending doctors to places is one of the things that, um, that they have done for, I mean, in a really long time. And being a poor country and with the embargo from the U.S., they had to invent their way through a lot of, of stuff and make sure that there's a safety net for everybody. And so there was, there were the kinds of things that I heard people talk about from either other countries or from other generations about like your doctor lived in the neighborhood. You know, like it, being a doctor or a nurse in Cuba is not exceptional. It's like every family either has a doctor wow. in it knows a doctor there's a doctor that lives in their building there's a doctor's office in your building no matter what um within a certain radius so every part of the um of the community has a doctor with a doctor's office in the community within a certain radius so there's no part that's left uncovered and nurses in, in this is the same way it's like everybody has like a nurse in the family or knows a nurse in the family so there's the the safety net um even outside of like going to the doctor's office you know people come and knock on the door and be like can you just can i ask you about this thing can i can you come and see my you know my family member or something so it was always um you know they there's a name for it medico de la familia it's like a, a family doctor and you are truly like a family doctor there and that's across um you know the entire country so it's blanketed with primary care for everyone that's that's pretty amazing um what what was the medical school experience like for you did you the entire time you were there were you thinking this is like definitely what i want to be doing yeah so that in the beginning it was 
And part of what really made it so um, great was that we were there all living together. So it was um, an international school. Um, it's called Escuela Latinoamericana de Medicina. It's Latin American Medical School um, in English. And it's an international school. And so there were, when we got there, I think it was about 23 countries. And so it was all of Latin America. The only non-native um, Spanish speakers were the students from the U.S., um, the students from Belize and from Brazil and everyone else were native Spanish speakers. And we all lived in dorms for the first two years. And uh, it was an old naval training academy that was converted into medical school. And when I first got there, it's like I was learning Spanish because I didn't speak Spanish before going down. I had taken a year of it in high school, a year of it in college, but I didn't actually speak um, fluently until I got down there. So I spent uh, two months before school started to learn it well enough to be able to start the first year in Spanish. Um, but all of the professors were Cuban, all the patients down the line were in the clinical years were Cuban, um, and all of our classmates were Spanish speakers. And so being in that environment, I mean, it was like, you know, the, the people say like the college experience, it was like that times just a million. It's like, I, yeah. everything was new. Living in Cuba was new. Speaking Spanish was new. Learning about these students from these other countries. Like I hadn't even, you know, I didn't know, you know, Paraguay had a different, another language. I had never heard of like Guarani. Like I didn't know that they were, I, I'd never met black Peruvians. I'd never met Garifuna students from Honduras. And I had, I felt very naive. <laughs> like I had no idea that there was so much out there. I'd never met students from Belize. Like I didn't, I couldn't have even pointed Belize out on a map. So all of that and being with the U.S. students, um, it was incredibly fun. It was really hard. It was like really weird to be in sitting in class and being in Spanish all day. Like, is this weird for anybody else? I'm like, apparently it's not because everyone's native Spanish speaker except for us. It's not weird. So in the first two years, it was, it was really what I was looking for. It's like yeah. I had yeah. taken all these values of like community service and I was going to be giving back. And I felt very strongly that medicine was going to be the thing. And I had this time of saying, like, even if I were in the U.S., I would go into medicine. I just hadn't started the clinical years yet. <laughs> and yeah. so yeah. I started realizing, like, oh, actually, the clinical side is, is not really what I enjoy. And so as the clinical years came on, then I started realizing, like, I'm not quite liking this rotation. Maybe the next rotation will be better. And each year it was kind of waiting for the next thing to be a little bit um, better and I just really, yeah, didn't quite enjoy the clinical aspect of it, but I loved studying medicine. So I loved learning the why. I liked reading the textbooks. I liked, you know, learning the physiology. So it was like, I liked all that background knowledge around medicine, but, um, there were clearly people like my husband who was in the program with me, who was a, a year ahead of me. Um, but we met down there. He clearly loved medicine. And I was like, Oh yeah, I can kind of see the difference. I'm not quite that, that one. Yeah. It's interesting. I think. Law and medicine are two of these things which for some people, they really enjoy studying it, but don't mm -hmm. like the jobs at all. Uh, and there's such a delay, right? You've committed this huge chunk of time. And then when you finally make it to clinical and are about to become a doctor, uh, everything in your head must be telling you, you have to like this. You've put so much yeah. work and time into it. Um, so what were those early years like? 
Well, what one thing that I recognized early on was that I knew that it was going to be a privileged position to be able to veer because it was free. Right. And it was 100% free from the Cuban government for all students from every country who was there. We still paid for our um, like travel expenses. Um, but as far as our uh, medical school tuition, that was entirely paid for by Cuba. Yeah. And so I actually was listening to the episode that you had done with, um, with Ali Abdal and him saying like him asking other doctors, would you do this if you would, you know, won the lottery? Would yeah. you do this full time? Like no Most one. of them said no. And so for me, I realized, oh, my lottery was going to Cuba itself. You know, my lottery was the fact that I had gotten this gift that was, um, free and that I had this chance to contribute in a way that was actually going to be the, a more beneficial way than kind of being miserable as a doctor. I'm not going to be helping anybody if I'm like hate going in every day. And so it had been a lot of time. I mean, it was six years, but then again, since I had started earlier, so when I graduated, I think it was 27. Yeah. I was 27 when I graduated. And so I still felt like, you know, nothing, none of my time in Cuba was wasted. I met my husband there. I learned Spanish. I had this incredible life-changing time of living with students from other countries and meetings, um, having these friendships with the students from the U S being heavily involved with the U S um, delegation and, and being one of the representatives for a few of the years. Um, and so that was a foundational experience for me. And so I knew that, that like that was not in vain and something was still going to come of that, even if I wasn't practicing as a, as a clinical physician. Did you find that more students from that program have taken alternative paths because of the lack of debt? Um, honestly, no. Most of them have continued on. So once we kind of got the hang of the students graduating and taking their exams to be able to get in um, to residency here, because um, we were all kind of you know learning how to do this yeah at, uh, on our own you know the first graduates from there were the, were the year that i um graduated one student graduated in 2005 but um the first group of students that went from their first year through their sixth year graduated in 2007 which is the year that i arrived um and so in the beginning it was kind of as everyone learning and so as we got um better figuring out when do we take our our step exams over the summer and when we do our um internships and we had a lot of help from organizations that are here that, that support the students. Um, once we started getting the hang of that, most of the students that come out, especially in the past, you know, good, I guess, eight, nine years, um, most people are going into residency and are sometimes they'll take a, a more, they can, the, I guess the non-traditional thing, which unfortunately is the non-traditional thing here is that they can go into primary care. So they can be, be an OBGYN, they can go into pediatrics, you know, they can, if anything, like someone like my husband who went to a specialty, he went into critical care. That's more rare because we're not paying back all of this debt. So you can go into primary care and have still keep that, some of that altruism that people tend to go into medical school with because you're not forced to go into a specialty just to be able to pay back all of the debt. Um, and so if anything, that it's a, it's, it's like the, the non-traditional way of doing yeah, something that most sure. people would love if it were the traditional option here. Yeah. It's, um, 
we don't have enough time to explore all the challenges of the youth us healthcare system yeah exactly um, that's the whole well and, and you know and other people are really are probably more well suited to to talk about it but um exactly that's its own episode yeah i've gotten a part-time master's navigating it trying to get self-employed health insurance it's i just describe it yeah. as a dump dumpster fire and leave it at that but um yeah. when so did you end up doing residency or did you um, step away from that before then? Yeah. So I chose by the time I graduated, I, knew, I really knew that I wasn't going to continue and I knew that I wasn't going to even do residency. So I chose from the beginning to not pursue residency either. So I didn't pursue residency, but I did um, finish all of my step exams or these three exams to, to take. I finished my step exams and I'm certified as a foreign medical graduate but did not pursue residency. Yeah. And wh what did you decide to do after that? So that's really where the story starts to change kind of more drastically. I mean, I thought that that was drastic up until that point. <laughs> and then after that point, it started to change even more drastically. So when I graduated, I was pregnant with my daughter. And so, and I had taken these exams and I knew that I was, since I wasn't going to be going into residency, my husband was in his first year of, um, of residency for internal medicine, that I was going to stay home and care for my daughter while I started to figure out what I was going to be doing next. And so when she was born, um, this was 2014, and when she was born, all the options that I had thought were still kind of like, oh, you have a baby and you just, you know, keep going. And you, it's just nothing's different. It's like you have a puppy now. And like, <laughs> you have this, you know, this other like, yeah, they're there, but you can still do the same stuff. Nothing drastically changes in your life. Like I was not ready for the change. What yeah. happened with my, with my daughter. And I think the, the biggest thing that it became a, a really prominent part of my story that I've only now started talking about because I realized that, you know, I, I wish that it were more, more of an accessible conversation for people to have was around mental health. And so when she was born, it was kind of like an immediate drop into postpartum depression and which kind of continued into just a, a generalized depression over many years. But it was all of those factors. Um, there was one, like one, a book that really helped me to, to see kind of why those, why that time was such a, there's like two books really helped me see why the, that time was a particular challenge and why that was a huge trigger for that. It's like I had, you know, just been living out of the country for six years. It was like coming, moving to New York and my family was in California and, um, came coming back into this whole world of technology. You know, I went down to Cuba in 2007. That's the year the iPhone was released. So I was spent six years and everyone else was like zooming ahead. Yeah. And wow. I came back and was like, whoa, what <laughs> happened? What's what is that app? machine? <laughs> What's like exactly what exactly like what is how do you turn on the phone? Like what what is an iPhone? I had no, I just wow. didn't understand how to use any of that. Um Yeah, that's so much at once. It was a lot at once. And then not having a, a path. I had been this driven person. Yeah. For so long. So I had gone, you know, kind of full steam ahead since 15. Um, changing past, like doing, going everything, like really like 110% full steam ahead. And so when um, I was home and not sure of what I was going to be doing, I had really no, <laughs> no plan. It was just not a recipe for, you know, 
feeling positive um, about where I had been. And so it kind of, there was definitely this feeling of like having failed. And so feeling like, oh, I was supposed to be like, I really should have done, I should have stayed more traditional. Because, and I wish that I hadn't liked it. I wish I wish that I had loved medicine. I'm like, I wish I could be traditional that way. It would be so much easier. It'd be so much easier if I loved medicine and I could go into it because it's right there. It's right there in front of me. Um, and so taking this other path where you have all of these options, um, I think I'd mentioned that in, you know, talking about what I was going to talk about today with you was like this paradox of choice. Like that was really jarring. Um, and so even things like going to a supermarket became like, whoa, there are so many options here after coming from Cuba. It's like, there are too many options. <laughs> and it's like the, the gift and the curse, like too many options for small scale things and for large scale things. And so that was a really, really big disruption. And so it took a long time to find some clarity. Yeah, the, I noticed this is a big thing of people that sort of shift paths in life, which is they have the sense that I've sort of failed on the first path. And I kind of went through this. So then you're super hesitant for that like yeah. next choice, right? So like that yeah. the paradox of choice plus the fear of like, you don't want to waste another seven years or at least it feels like that. So it feels even more powerful. Um, I think this held me back of the first few years after quitting my job. I was so afraid of just like creating another, another job for myself. Mm -hmm that I really didn't explore a lot of stuff. Um, but a lot of it was that. I just like, I didn't want to feel like a fool again. Yeah, like, it's exactly. Like, it's like people kind of looking at you like, what do you mean you spent six years in Cuba and you're not going to be a doctor? Like, yeah. I don't, I, there's no frame of reference to even talk about that. You know, there's well, definitely people who, who understood, but it was, it's, it's not, that's not usually the, the story because here you really, there's no option to really do that. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's also sad, too, because I think so many people, especially in the U.S., are anchored around work, uh, men mm -hmm. and women. And like you had a child at a relatively young age for the U.S. now. Um, yeah. And I imagine people were still asking you, oh, are you going to stay home? Right. Yeah. As if working is the default. Yeah. Hot. Yeah. So I did get, I got both sides. I got some of the, you know, it's, so what are you going to do next if you're not going to go into clinical practice? Okay, that's fine. Like they could accept that it was not going to be the thing, but like, what else are you going to do? And there was definitely on the other side of, oh, it's this really great opportunity to be able to stay home with your daughter. And it's like, I could teach her Spanish. So I've spoken Spanish to her. So I have a son now also who's, um, who's six, she's eight. Um, I could speak Spanish with them, which has, you know, really raising them as bilingually as I can, having not been a native um, speaker and but being fluent. And, you know, it's, that's a big priority for me. So there were a lot of things, but I think one of the biggest pieces that gets talked about, but kind of like off on the side, but like it cannot be ignored. Living in a society that assigns value with money and reimbursement it cannot be overlooked, the psychological weight of being a stay-at-home mother who is not earning and who also left an option to yeah. earn in this prestigious way um, and to have the social status. And, you know, mothers in general to have kind of by the status level and by, you know, that there is no um, like 
support structure for stay-at-home mothers financially, nor kind of any other way that we can't overlook the psychological weight that that has on women and on any stay-at-home parent, regardless of gender. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, did you find people um, or communities or resources to talk to during that time? It sounds like it was a pretty tough period for you. Yeah, there really, there were places that I probably could have reached out to more, but I didn't really know how to access those at the yeah. time. And so it was just kind of like being in the, in the trenches with, you know, my two kids, a two-year-old and a, and a newborn and my husband in, in training, because um, he did three years of residency and then three years of, um, of clinical, of, the, uh, of specialty training. And so he came, um, you know, just finished his last year, his, I guess, yeah, his first year of attending was during COVID, actually. First year of attending was during COVID. And so it was just very much in the trenches. But, you know, the thing that got me through a lot of that time was reading. Um, and so there were a lot of um, books that really helped me. And so I, I was able to still feed my intellectual curiosity with a lot of reading and yeah. um, following um, kind of those academic strands of, of, uh, of thought that I had developed and a lot of interest around mental health and learning about depression. And like, so that really gave me a lot of context. And so that became something that became very um, strong for me. And I was able to see that that was an interest of, of mine outside of just my own story, but that it's really important for me, for people to understand that whatever kind of thing you are going through in your personal life, that there is some larger context to it. And so there's a lot that um, like ideas around work and, you know, like you thinking like, oh, am I the only one kind of thinking about these things? You start sharing your story, write a book and people are like, oh, wow, no, all of our conversations are part of this broader thing. And it gives a lot of relief to know that you are kind of part of something that's, that's bigger. You're within the flow of, you know, like a, a social and a cultural tide and you're not unique. It's, it's like, it's helpful to know that you're not unique yeah. in having yeah. those struggles. And so that was really what gave me the most relief is recognizing like, I'm not unique for, for having such a hard time right now um, because it's challenging and there's a lot of, you know, social context that make it challenging and a lot of beliefs about what I'm supposed to be doing since I had been this early bloomer. That was the thing is like, I had been this early bloomer and it always been, had a lot of um, like praise thrown on me about, Oh wow, you're starting things so early. You're going to do these huge things. You're going to be like this, superstar in who knows what <laughs> you're going to do something and it has to be big because yeah. you have to t- take advantage of having all of these opportunities early on to then do this grand thing. And so coming out on the other side, feeling like I wasn't doing this grand thing already, you know, by 30, it was like, Oh, I, I feel like I'm supposed to be farther along <laughs> than this. It's such a hard thing for people, especially people on past that, have taken some sort of prestigious or successful seen as successful path because there's the um, feeling like, Oh, I've kind of like failed or something. But then there's also this really confusing thing. I notice a lot of people navigate, which is like, I shouldn't be complaining. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where people start short circuiting. Um, and they're not able to reflect because they tell themselves, oh, I should be happy. I know I have enough. I have resources. And 
like, I think part of what drove me to write my book is to sort of just say, like, I think everyone deserves like permission to reflect and not feel good about yeah. their path. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Human suffering is universal. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually, what you said reminded me of something that I thought about in, in thinking about talking today was like at some point also wanting permission to not be exceptional. And like that was, it's, it's, um, so it's interesting, like learning to be on, on Twitter and also learning kind of is a part of a, a culture of like having to still kind of express and, and portray yourself as being exceptional in some way. And, you know, again, I think it's, it's, it's a kind of a very American cultural, um, culturally ingrained thing here that you are supposed to, um, always kind of be in the lead and be this exceptional, like force. And, some point I kind of realized like I just kind of kind of like want to be regular I kind of just want a job like if anything I'm on the other side I kind of just want a job yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to like want a regular job and be able to explore these creative things on the side like um I don't necessarily like it's okay to not be like exceptional like there's so much exceptionality in in kind of being regular like having my family and having the kids and and uh you know teaching them all of these things and having my family come to visit like the kind of ordinary regu regular things are things to still be and celebrated yeah there's this default pull of the world i think which is towards more towards doing your best towards extreme accomplishment and i think it they works well for some people and it can be useful for some people at some ages right to push themselves but generally, most people sort of figure out it doesn't actually lead to like extended periods of satisfaction with one's life. Yeah. And I think that's where the problem is because it, it, what it means is you have to develop your own sort of philosophy, principles, and operating system because you can't really copy paste like what the culture tells you you should do yeah. for most people. It works really well for like a small percentage of people, but probably less than 5% of people. Um, what, were there any books or ideas that helped you start to, um, shift that mindset and thinking? Yeah, I think there were two. I mean, there was, there was a, there were probably several that really were helpful in giving me that context. Like I said about realizing I'm kind of part of like a bigger thing. Um, one was a book, um, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And he just wrote another, I was going to recommend it to you, another really excellent book called Stolen Focus. Um, and his book was about the, the lost connections um, that people have in their lives to meaningful work and to meaningful relationships and to status and to nature, like these kinds of things that create the circumstances for good mental health. He was writing specifically around um, depression that create the circumstances for good mental um, health. And when you have those connections that are lost, which I realized were a lot of the connections that I had kind of lost, like one fell swoop when I came back from, from Cuba. Um, it's kind of no, it's no like mystery. So why some people would struggle um, because like those are things that we all need to sustain ourselves um, and sustain each other. And so it, it makes sense that people struggle when they don't have those, um, those like protective um, factors in that way. Like those are definitely have an influence on, on our mental health. 
And yeah, it, it would have been weird if you didn't struggle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. And it's true. So, yeah. Like so much at once, like uh, location change, family change, probably hormonal change from the postpartum as well, mm-hmm. and status changes and like technology and environment. It's like, yeah. wow, that is a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, like, it's a lot like in one fell swoop. So that actually takes me to the second book, which um, I guess, yeah, it was a kind of a, a time between reading that first one, Lost Connections, and like the, um, and the, the next one. But the next one was Life is in the Transitions by Bruce Feiler. And I've talked so much about this book. I'm like, Bruce, if you're <laughs> watching this, I've talked so much about his book. I'm like, like evangelizing his book every time that I, every chance that I can get. Um, but his book was so helpful because it gave this language that was so apt for what had happened. And so a term that he used was um, lifequake. And he's like, there's a lot of disruptors that happen and disruptors can be positive or, um, you know, more negative, but things that you kind of voluntarily go into, like changing work voluntarily, um, having a child, getting married, those are still disruptors, things that will change your normal life path. Um, but sometimes because of how many disruptors there are um, or the timing that they, it's like, it had a, a analogy of being like a, a pileup, you know, like sometimes there's a, a three, four, mm. five part pileup. And when there's a huge pileup like that, he termed this um, a life quake, which like when I heard that just made perfect total term. sense. It was total like perfect, perfect term for it. It was, it was great because I'm like, oh, that's what had happened. It was a life quake where you recognize like everything that you kind of thought was happening is like flipped upside down. It's like a complete shift in what's happening to your life. And like, there's a before that happened and there's an after that happened and your life is never really the same after that happened. And that it actually, one thing I got from that book was that it really is, um, you really normalized one, how often this happens in people's lives. Yes. Um, how many people have across their lifespan so it's not just like, oh, one time and maybe I mean, if you get through life with one life quake, <laughs> then, then you're doing pretty good. Um, but the disruptors themselves, disruptors will happen throughout our lives. And we actually need skills to learn how to navigate them. That it's not, we shouldn't, doesn't, doesn't have to be left up to chance. Like either maybe you might completely fall off or you might be okay that they're actually skills since it is something that is so common and is so frequent. Um, that there really skills for that. And what I think helped was that he normalized how long it tends to take from a life quake, how long a transition really takes. And, you know, he said, I think it was like five to six years, like people that he had interviewed, wow. generally people that it's like five or six years that it takes to kind of transition through a life quake in that way. And I was like, oh, that makes sense also. <laughs> Like, so, yeah, that's about the, the, the time that it had been before, um, you know, because my kids were around that, you know, that age at that time when I was reading it. So he would say, and this is something I think about a lot. So many people are like, when is the single moment things turned? And yeah, I just don't really buy that yeah. explanation. Maybe that is for some people. What would Bruce say about like mm. the emergence of what life quakes? Does it take a certain time to realize, oh, this shift has started. Like it doesn't that's seem your, like you're entering one. Well, it, it it doesn't seem like you can be fully aware of them as they're happening. It's like only yeah. upon reflection can you be like, oh yes, of course. Like yeah. me looking back six, seven years now, it's like, 
oh, I see what was emerging. But in yeah. the moment, I was like, I had no idea. Yeah, you're like, what is this chaos? What is this strange thing? I don't know what is going on. Like, what is happening to, to, to my life here? Um, that's a good point because I don't recall anything from the book about noticing when you're in one. It is kind of like, oh, what I just went through. Oh, that was like a huge, like, <laughs> that was a set of disruptors. I see why it happened all at that time, but it is more like upon reflection. But what it did remind me that I... Um, that I really resonated with in, in the book was about um, when you're coming out of one and he called it the first normal moment. And when you recognize like you're doing something and you're like, huh, this is actually feels kind of like a, like normal, like kind of back to normalcy. And I remember there'd be a few times me starting to reach out to people, um, you know, a class I was interested in auditing at Columbia and, and, uh, um, epidemiologist and was like, I'm really interested in your work. And so it'd be really great to like, you know, hear about your work and come kind of tag along with, with you and see what you're working on and um, thinking about, oh, I can actually get involved in courses online. There were like these things that to other people would not have seemed so momentous. But when you're coming out of a, a light quake, those little actions, like taking agency in that way, that is really momentous. And that kind of propels more normal moments and then eventually you're like oh i'm kind of getting in a new groove so that term was another one that that really helped what are some of the other experiments you've done i know writing online um other creative stuff and like drawing uh you've done yeah um how have you thought about like trying to do experiments or try different things to kind of lean into that new mode you're experiencing I think that now I'm, it's actually kind of on reflection. Now I realize um, that I want to be even more intentional about like, oh, these are actual, it's kind of the things that people have been saying that I recognize that people who are talking about this very much in relation to work. It's like, I take it as work, but also life, you know, kind of thing, doing these small experiments and then reflecting on it afterwards. Um, I really understand the the value in in taking these things that are very well defined and trying these things out that are very well defined and like purposely giving myself constraints to try something in this constrained timeline or in this particular manner and so i think the um so there were kind of those i guess you would call it like traditional um ways this leaning into let me dip my toe into this academic side again and like audit a course here and see what people are doing around academia because they're kind of like coming full circle <laughs> when yeah. i graduated 19 some of my professors were like oh you got to go and do a phd and i'm like i'm 19 like what <laughs> well, who am i going to be teaching when i come out of like whatever 25 26 like i should not be teaching <laughs> anybody with my age just because I have the PhD, I know no offense to anybody who has done a PhD with Jung. I know several of them, <laughs> but for me, it felt it didn't feel like it was um, that it was right. Um, and but I've always been still drawn to academia, so I keep coming back to that. Like, oh, maybe I should go back yeah. into um, academia and uh, seeing what. Were you hesitant at first to do that? Like, were you hesitant yeah. to reach out to academia because that was sort of like the world you left behind? Like, medicine is so academic driven. It was because, so I think one of the connections that I was making, one of the interests that I had when I was coming out was in this interest um, between 
it's urban health, um, I mean, urban planning and public health is like a connection in that kind of sphere. And one of the things that I was doing was, is this something that I want to study or something that I want to practice? Because that's kind of been my dilemma always is like, is it something that I just want to study? Is yeah. it something that I want to yeah, practice? Yeah. And I know that there should be this, this middle ground where you're studying and, and practicing but I didn't really have any examples of um, people yeah. who were kind of... You don't want to wait six it. years next time to figure that out, right? <laughs> so that was the piece. It's like, I keep coming back to like, let me just get into something that has constraints. <laughs> Academia has this thing that has you know these big constraints, but then I'm like, I don't want to be coming down, you know, six, seven years down the line and be like, great. And now what? Again. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I need to do these smaller experiments, um, but it's kind of a double-edged sword because you either want to get into something that gives, gives you really clear constraints that you are not feeling like you're just kind of in the middle of the ocean. Um, as you know, I feel like you allude to a lot of like you're having these options that you've got to create some limits for yourself. Um, but there's also this fear of doing it on the other side of doing these experiments that are smaller because there is something about it feeling like it takes longer, you know, like it takes longer because you are, the exploring that I didn't do at 19, basically, when I graduated, which would have been around the time that I would have graduated from high school, if I would have gone all the way through, the exploring I didn't do then is kind of the exploring that I'm doing now. Mm, yeah, And that is not, it's definitely a limiting belief, but I know that that's one that I am not the only one who shares that, but it's like, that is okay for 19 year olds. But like people who are not 19 at other stages of their lives, way past me. How do you build in exploring things that may be kind of very different? How do you build in exploration um, in a way that is kind of socially acceptable? And so that's what I'm starting to learn from people like you and people that you talk with, because I'm realizing, oh, people are actually doing this like creating structure around how to explore in this way when you're kind of way down the line yeah it's it's really hard because there's a couple components I, i've tried to name stuff like this like i call it the long slow stupid fun way mm -hmm. um <laughs> and the the challenge of exploring things as an adult is because you're smart enough to know what mm -hmm. it feels like to know do, how to do things, which means if you learn anything new, you feel really silly. And yeah. then if somebody asks you, what's your plan? You really have no idea. So yeah. then you're fumbling around trying to come up with an explanation. You're, you're feeling <laughs> uncomfortable. And then you're like, I might as well just quit because I don't want to feel this way. Yeah. Um, and I've learned to try and keep leaning into that because one, one mm -hmm. of my goals is I have not seen a lot of alive and energized and connected men who are, mm. are older in my life. And so my bet is that continuing to do these things now is probably the only way to get in that state, um, which is important to me. Um, but yeah, we have this, the should brain of like, the smart thing to do is this the smart thing to do is just to get a job and like i don't know for me like money what makes sense the sensible things um i really deprioritize a under 
like what feels most alive or energized. And maybe I'll go broke doing this, uh, but at least <laughs> at least it feels like a bet I want to actually mm. engage in. I like when you said that, yeah. What, what are some of the constraints? What are some of the constraints you've um, given yourself? So one is getting, well, there's the experiments piece, which I guess there's more to say about the experiments pieces. I recognize getting into communities that are already established. And so um, the first kind of place that I dipped my toe into um, was the Building a Second Brain um, course with uh tiago forte and that was yeah so that was a great it was a great start it was like oh this is this is wonderful this was like i i had been doing these kinds of things on my own being interested in like information management to keep track of my own reading as i was you know home with um with the kids with like all of my like connections of how things were relating to each other and how i ended up at this topic when i started at this topic like those are things that are really interesting to me. And I found this, there's this whole community of people who are interested in like personal knowledge management. I had no idea like this. I want to be a part of this crew <laughs> and I want to be yeah. around this. And so I started with that and um, I realized getting into a, a community in that way is so valuable. I mean, it makes entire sense why this, why cohort based courses have been so popular because it's like, it's like when people, you know, go to a college, it's like you're also buying into the community and you're buying into the network and it makes it so much easier. Kind of a lot of things can be, um, a lot of assumptions can be made when you find somebody else who's also in it. You're like, oh, okay, we kind of already have some frame of, of connection. So that was great. And there was a lot of overlap into the Ship 30 for 30 community. And so I started Ship 30 for 30 just this year. That felt like a really big jump though. Um, because I felt like I was kind of more Sh kind of in my own world stuff. Yes. Because I had not been on social media. Like I had not been, um, I mean, one, I came back in, you know, from Cuba and it's like, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> what is going on? Like, cause I remember specifically leaving before Cuba, I had like an Nokia flip phone <laughs> leaving before Cuba. And it was, I remember that it would be seen as vain to take a picture of yourself. Cause you had to do it with an actual camera, first of all. <laughs> that would have been weird to walk around with an actual camera, <laughs> taking a picture of yourself, like a whole thing. So, but I remember that feeling of like, oh, it's vain. Like no, no one took pictures of themselves. And I come back, I'm like, oh, wow, that's what you're supposed to do is take a picture of yourself. Selfies. Like, I don't know if I can get into this. And like, this is a really strange, this is a really strange culture shift right here. I don't know if I can... <laughs> if I can do this. And so it took me a long time to even kind of dip my toe into it. So I definitely yeah. had not been anywhere near Twitter, but being um, around um, people who were publishing um, things publicly on Twitter and like the being in that space that was really positive and people were encouraging and supportive of each other. Um, like it was just such a different experience from what I feel like most people had had. And I'm like, Oh, this is actually something I really, I want to be, around that I want to be a part of. I can see that I can see why people join into this. It's like creating your, you know, own little positive positivity club over here, which I thought was a, a good way of kind of harnessing some of that. Um, I think as far as, um, oh, like I said, the last thing after that was through Ship 30 for 30. Then I found um, Laura Evans Hill, who does the 
um, pencil pirates, um, atomic visuals drawing course. And, um, that was totally unexpected. I had no idea. I enjoyed drawing and learning to make visuals. Like I had no idea that was a thing. And so now I'm like, Oh, great. I want to be part of this too. I don't know where that's going to take me, but I remember you, uh, the interview you had with, um, uh, Lawrence Yo and like how you talked about him, uh, putting his writing and his visuals together and how that really makes, you know, it's like, I, I love being able to learn to do things for myself like that. And so I really wanted to have that kind of that, that outlet. But as far as now working um, goes, I do feel like I'm actually on the other side of like not wanting to start off with like monetizing a creative um, path because it yeah. feels so much in its infancy, like so in its infancy that there isn't, some there isn't a there there you know there isn't yeah. a there there yet and that there will be and i'm kind of like kind of like a an, an, you know like with the einstein job it's like einstein job it's like something that you can do and that's engaging and that's you know interesting but i i can do a lot of things that don't need to be um this like have so much writing on it like i feel like my the kind of creative exploration has um and kind of learn skills you know learn a lot of, of new skills that i feel like would be really beneficial to help a lot of people out i want to be i want to be around the creative people i want to be around the people who are doing it and like be fascinated to learn about what they're doing i'm like how can i help you okay how can i like, what do i need to learn to like help you out and those are the skills that i feel like i actually want to like that's look amazing for and so but as far as constraints also around time and things like I at home, I have my, my kids are, are, are in school now, but just with COVID was a huge, um, you know, the big example. And then even going back now and there was you know, still some uh, stoppages in the beginning of the school year that I really need work to be remote. You know, I hadn't been so clear on that. It needs to be remote until after COVID and being home with my, with my kids. Yeah, that's. That's such a powerful mode you're in. Like, I would say, like, protect that. Like, yeah. I don't know if you've read Stephen Cope's book, but I, I write about it in my book. He calls it the great work of your life is basically finding mm. those things. It seems like you found them. And I think a lot of creative people, I think most people are creative, but that's kind of another point. But most creative people have this sense that like they need, once they find the thing, it's like, then I need to like protect that thing. And yeah. I think when people have this idea, I need to monetize, I need to make money from this. They often will like short circuit this curiosity or like level out and plateau and yeah. like start selling a thing that is like just a local minimum. And like yeah. the potential was far beyond that. So that's yeah. amazing. Um, well, I'm also still very interested in the ideas. And so I, I want to continue to explore. Um, I want to continue to explore. And it, this might just be because I'm, I'm at this place and I don't quite know all the examples of what, how people are doing it. But I want to continue to explore broadly and not feel like I have to be the expert <laughs> or like be, you know, have this like exceptional thing that I can like then teach you. I'm like, I'm still very much learning. So I kind of want to be in a place where I can still learn with people um, along the way. Yeah, I think a big thing for, I mean, I had the same impulse towards my writing early on. Mm -hmm. It was like, 
I did a couple experiments to try and make money, but it was just totally uninteresting to me. And I had the sense I need to figure out how to make money doing other things and then increase the amount of time I can focus on this writing. And then one thing I just did to try and get some feedback, which I think there is a trap of like not leaning into creative projects that would actually like be rewarding. I think writing mm-hmm. my book was probably the most like rewarding project I've ever done in my life. Um, Do I wish I did it earlier though? I don't know, but I listened to people talking to me through conversations and waited kind of for the signals from the universe and like just my gut instinct. And that's when I wrote it. Um, It wasn't to try and like make money. I really just wanted to write it for the sake of itself. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of doing the same thing with this podcast now, again. Like, podcasts are terrible businesses. <laughs> but, they're, but, but they're very fun and rewarding, um, personally. And I get so excited by paths like yours. I just want to share them. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing because we really need just examples. Like, it isn't so, it's not like, rocket science necessarily to hear about these things it's just you need a lot of examples since there isn't a textbook way you kind of need as right. many varied examples as um as possible but you know what reminds me of one more um book that was really helpful in this which gave me that that terminology about being a, an early bloomer and a late bloomer which is called late bloomers um by rich carl guard and he um talks about this obsession that we have in our culture here in the US at least um, about early achievement and that early achievement is always better and always preferred. And that there's so many examples in history of people who we would term as late bloomers who kind of had these winding routes in various ways and towards some, you know, later time in in their life, not before they were 25, later time in, in their life, found things that they really feel like they want to go kind of full on for contributed in a very meaningful way to their community, to themselves, to the world, and what we would now term as late bloomers. But those stories are not celebrated as much as the early bloomers, the, you know, savants of the, of the world who <laughs> can all have this, you know, hugely successful thing by the time they're, you know, 23, 24. Yeah, and the most interesting stories just don't sell, I think, or don't sell at scale. I think the internet does allow so many more voices to be heard. And I think this is why I always am encouraging people to share because there might be people like you you that just want to like pick one piece from their story and then remix it into their own life. Yeah. But even when people ask me about my story, they're they always ask leading questions like what what was the big moment the big aha the big turning yeah. point and all these big narratives and it's like yeah you're like well, it's well, not that exciting you're like i woke up one day and i still woke up the next day and i woke <laughs> up the day after that <laughs> yeah and there's also just this sense of like i haven't really figured it out yet yeah i sort of to say that's a very scary I, thing to say. That's not really like, that's not celebrated. You're like, I haven't figured it out. Right. Like, well, no, 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 no. You have to have figured this out. <laughs> and I feel like I started over from scratch, really. Like, yeah. I really feel like 
the person that did my undergraduate education and the 10 years of work in grad school was like an alien that like temporarily took over my body, did all those things. And now I'm like back as like a 17 year old again. (laughs) And I'm like fumbling around. Um, I have friends who are like crushing it and seem to enjoy their past. And it's like, kind of wish that would, I could have done that, but like, I completely understand. (laughs) I completely understand. I wish, oh yeah. It's I, not if my I could path. Have, what I have chosen, if there was a traditional path to like do this one thing and like have this straight success at, at something, would I have chosen this this other path? I mean, I'd like to say that I would, but I can't say. <laughs> you know that pull is incredibly strong, but I recognize that there is this. It leaves so many people out. It leaves yeah. the majority of people out. I guess is the thing. And it leaves out the, the amount of contribution that people can have to small and big things and the mental health consequences of people limiting themselves because they think they're supposed to do this huge thing. And so they're like, I'm just not going to do anything or I'm going to like, or they're struggling so hard that they can't recognize how much they have to contribute. That seems like a really big loss to me for society. If yeah. people are, if the, if the damage is, is so much that people are kind of counting themselves out when they could be contributing so much in, in, in meaningful ways that don't have to be public even, that don't have to be on this grand scale, but there's so much contribution, um, and, and health and vitality even for their own families that, that we're missing out on. And I feel like I do not want to continue that. So that's especially around the, the um, stories around mental health. I have friends who I knew from, um, before who knew that I left school early and for them from the outside, they very much saw me as, Oh, Aida just crushed everything. He like just yeah. went ahead. She blew through stuff. And that even my dad right, right now, like where I'm at right now, like she's got these kids and we had a husband, like she's doing, she has made it. And I remember the first time talking about my mental health struggles with one of my friends. She's like, well, I had no idea. And most of them had no idea. And she's like, I thought, like, I was always jealous of your path. Like, I was always jealous of your path for having just checked off all these boxes. And I thought that I was struggling. I really wish I could have done this like you. And I know that I'm not the only one. It's become something that I'm really, you know, passionate about helping people see that there's, that's a really big aspect. Um, and yeah. even just to normalize that there's a, that there's a big break in people's paths, especially as a parent and staying home parent. There's, there's big breaks in people's paths that I don't think that we're doing anybody a service by trying to kind of paint over it and like make it and market it in a very tidy way. Um, like, I, well, I was a stay-at-home parent, but while I was a stay-at-home parent, I was the president of the PTA and I did this and I volunteered in this and I did this thing and, and I had this side hustle on the side and I had this Etsy store and like I did all of this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but you were a parent at home <laughs> with ten kids. Like, that's a lot. That's enough. Yeah. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot. And like, I want that. I want to contribute as as vulnerable as it is. I want yeah. to contribute to normalizing that more. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's a lot of what I try to talk about from work too. Is like, I don't know. I'm. Still figuring out. I've never done like anything too impressive. Um, 
other people look at it as impressive, but like behind the scenes, there's always been a lot of things I've had to deal with. My whole journey is really about letting go of my past. And there's a real deep sadness. Um, Mm. And I think I'm in a good place with it now, but it's, there's like a, almost like a burial you have to perform with your past identity. And I think it's so hard because there are so many good memories in that past identity. Mm -hmm. And there are the painful ones and those are easy to understand and point out. But like, I think it's so hard to let go of these identities because there are good things that happen. Have you done anything to sort of um, deal with the loss of that past identity of like overachiever, successful, exceptional person, MD grad? That's a really good question because that's something that came up in the, in that book, life is in the transitions also about like having like it really, it's been a meaningful moment when people have done something that kind of helps to close that loop. I haven't done anything that I can really point to, but what I feel like takes the place of that is actually just talking about that more openly before there wasn't it was kind of like I was still um, portraying myself as that Mm. to more people and now I've just stopped trying to portray myself as that anymore you know it's like I know writing help with that sort of but it was so um, since that was still so early it felt like you know I was just trying to learn how to be on Twitter and learn how to be public in general. And, um, the, the tweet that I eventually did put as my, um, pinned tweet, which had like a, you know, a timeline of the early successes in that way. And like the the struggle that I had um, afterwards, there was such a huge response to it. Like all positive. There's like a huge response to it that it was a little overwhelming to share your story about something and have people like, I'm glad it was all positive, but have you, you share your story and people are, are really um, receptive to it, but that you realize, oh, I'm not quite ready to be that open, but it was at least a, that first step. And so it kind of, mm. it, it kind of comes in waves of like, you step out and you get the response and you kind of pull back and you like step out and get the response and like pull back. And so yeah. I recognize like, that's just part of it. Um, but it did really solidify that, um, there is a choice that I can make about like what conversation do I want to contribute to. And one of those conversations is around, um, is around mental health and normalizing mental health and around normalizing non-traditional paths and like winding paths in life. And so I'm going to make the choice to share more. And so I wasn't quite at that place when I first started Ship 30, but like each step has been a little bit more making it more comfortable and recognizing that I can direct my narrative now um, in a way like, do I want these kinds of conversations to be part of my life? And do I want, um, like, this is kind of what I want to do all the time. I want to have conversations with people about their, about their stories, about their past. And whenever I meet somebody, I'm so interested, even the academics that I follow, I'm always interested in like, Ooh, but what happened in your life that got you interested in this? <laughs> Like, I really want to know amazing. <laughs> what got you interested in this. So 
if I want that to be part of my life, I don't want that to be like a little side thing. Like I want that to yeah. be a way for people to, to talk about these kinds of things and not have it be so scandalous. Like there's nothing that happened in my life that is so scandalous that yeah, you, you, know, you can't talk about it. It's all stuff that everyone else goes through. But um, the only way that we start normalizing it is by actually talking about it and releasing some of that stigma actively. Yeah, you wrote, this was hard to write, but it's done and so is my fear of the topic. It sounds like there might be still a little fear of writing about it, but like, was there some sort of like processing done just by like publishing it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... um, And I'll link up to it. It's it's so amazing. I think um, it's so simple and direct and powerful and i think like five or six people tagged me and we're like have you seen this paul really that's interesting they're like it's probably something you should talk to you're like i i've known that <laughs> yeah, yeah that's why i found you i'm like if you hadn't found me i would have found i found you um so it was it was just one of those steps it was one of those steps forward you know it was kind of like it was like two steps back right after that it was like immediately two steps back but then there was you know one other step forward and two steps back and even thinking about today i'm like am i willing to, to start talking about um, about the mental health aspect because I've, I've heard in your other conversations is like some of what I say overlaps with other people, but this is one aspect that I feel like I, I want to also um, include. And it's it's all been iterative for sure. It's not been like, yeah. oh, I have no, like, it's just like you said about it would have been weird if I hadn't struggled. Like it would be a little strange if I wasn't <laughs> a little... Um, nervous about sharing, you know, something that is so, um, you know, seen as such a taboo topic. Um, but it's, I want, I'm like making decisions every time to err on that side. And it has really helped me. And what I hope is that it also helps other people who, you know, may not ever talk about it publicly, but just know that there are other people who on the outside look all shiny and may not be as shiny as you think. Yeah, it's it's so interesting with the writing. I, I had a similar experience in 2015. Mm-hmm. I had written something about my challenges with Lyme disease. And for some reason, I just like couldn't put it out there. I felt really bad. I felt like I shouldn't be complaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just like let it rip emotionally and like published it. I put it on Quora. So it was like still hidden from like anyone I would know that would find it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and maybe that's what Twitter is. Like Twitter is still like a safe haven from most For of you? the people I know. Of. Oh. I don't know. I think some of my relatives do lurk, but like nobody ever says anything. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. Like you want to rec- publicly, but you want to hide it. You want to hide it as much as you can. I received a flood of comments from people from all around the world. Mm. saying like oh thank you for sharing this and it sort of just told me like a reason not to share because people might make fun of you is like not enough to like hold people back from sharing which is why I want to help so many people share like you may not feel like like I mean I look to people like you for wisdom um and you might I'm look kidding. at me and be like, you've been writing about this for years. You should know yeah, more. It's like, about this already. You got the book done already. <laughs> like, you got the but like, 
Okay, when you (laughs) (laughs) you could buy a microphone too. Um, When you write something like life is not linear and moving fast doesn't equal moving forward with intention. Like to me, that's so many things. That's creativity, that's wisdom, that's reflection, that's thoughtfulness. And it's like something that makes me think too. And like, these are the things that are so powerful about sharing and finding people. Um, And yeah, I think a lot of it is just giving us permission to be ourselves. And then like you, I think there is so much that can be offered from people that are willing to put in that reflection and trying to find a more connected state to themselves. Yeah. I know that there's always going to be some, there's always going to be like a lot of parts of ourselves. But what I was really worried about in the beginning was like, is there a place to be able to share these sides of yourself and also a place to be seen as professional and do those things mix and not having had the experience of seeing professional people talk about those things. Like the message is that there's not really a place to be vulnerable and to be open and be talking about things that are challenging. And then also to be seen as very professional because we see professionalism as being like unflawed, always very tidy. Everything's kind of together. And I can't imagine that that's actually the truth. It's just more like the the image you have to show of yourself to be able to seen as confident and professional. And I am always interested when people um, share, you know, who have, who are not, who are professional and are successful in whatever field they're in, and then also share this other side. That's actually one thing that I would want to um, share that was helpful too was. Um, podcast um, and he ended up writing a book also by the same name called The Hilarious World of Depression um, by John Moe Miss John Moe um, and it's a podcast it's um, comedians who you some people had heard of some people I hadn't heard of but um, comedians who are really successful in their work but also struggle a lot with um, depression and anxiety and have yeah. and talk about it um, there. And it's like, oh, this is the kind of thing I want to hear more about people who are, you know, working and doing their regular lives and are not, you know, complete messes, but also just share like, hey, we've also struggled with these, with these things. Um, so that podcast was one that was also um, a helpful resource. Yeah, and I think it's this just hangover from this very rigid, industrial, standardized economy and world we're coming out of i don't think people want this like stoic professionalism Mm. i do think sometimes there's this misleading like line of like be yourself which i do think does lead some young people astray when they don't understand like some of the costs of just like sort of like putting anything out there yeah but i talked to i talked to this one executive he was promoted to like CEO and I'm like do you realize if you just like he's like I need to like build a following online and like build a brand around this I was like do you realize if you just like shared what it felt like getting promoted and like what you're scared of Mm -hmm. and what you're excited about that you'd like there's still such a gap in some worlds like 
sharing that vulnerability. If you actually did that, you would get so much authentic following and yeah. like, like people would really want to actually hear about and follow. People would be excited to work for you. It might change the trajectory of your company, but yeah. like people just won't do it. Like we we just have these internal scripts that say we can't do these things. People like us yeah. don't do things like this. It's like the inverse of what Seth Godin says. Yeah. Um, but I think it's changing. And um, I think there's a way to be thoughtful, reflective, open, and uh, also professional. Because if you're a pro, that you know how you to do those, well, be vulnerable. Exactly. You, and you do those things, even having those feelings and even having those those struggles. You still show up and you still commit to things that you say you're going to um, commit to. And you still get work done even through challenges. It's like, that is something that I'm coming to understand is like, oh, that's professionalism. Like I say, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to, uh, you know, follow this particular uh, path here. And even having challenges, you still show up and you do it. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and you can talk about and, and access resources and get help to make sure you can fulfill on what you say you're going to do. And like those things are included you know, in professionalism and like my idea of like professionals in other areas um, don't have the uh, illusion that they're doing it alone. It's like, no, they know how to get the resources and the support that they need to make something happen. You put this question in to talk about, does the world of ideas and conversations count? So I think, I think yeah. it's interesting because if I had to define like, what is my work? This is definitely like part of it. Um, does mm -hmm. it lead to like paychecks directly? Definitely not, but like indirectly, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think what like sharpened my sense of like what was going on with my writing was all these conversations, but it never like made sense that like, oh, I'm going to do all these conversations and write a book. It was very organic. Mm -hmm. um, is the world of like ideas and conversation one you want to partake in? And like, what do you mean when you say, does it count? Yeah. Um, I think it's in the sense of, does it count, uh, to have it be your income? I guess is the thing. It's like knowing, um, how this actually people who do these things, like wh who are people who actually do the, the work and kind of in this world of, of ideas, like, okay, there's academics and there's people who write kind of as a, for a living, um, and I think the struggle is since I came from something that was very um, clear cut as far as very hands-on work. Yeah. And is it okay to do work that's um, not as hands-on, I guess, yeah. is the thing, you know, but I think it also answers the question of it doesn't have to be, it still is going to be a part of my life and still is going to be part of something that I want to um, you know, have these conversations with people kind of, all the time and I do in my regular life and and I want to have them in, in a way that you're like you're doing also but does that have to be my um my source of income I don't think so you know it doesn't have to feel like there's so much writing on it to like um and I think it was just an assumption me coming into kind of the Twitter world um from the beginning and and being in um ship 30 where there are people who are kind of farther along and developing their ideas and using their ideas as also a, a source of of income um and realizing I'm actually, I'm just not in that place yet. And so wanting to incorporate that into my life, but that it still is going to be kind of on the, um, on the side getting developed along the way. 
That's amazing. Well, I, I hope you keep leaning into these worlds. Um, I think I have a lot to learn from you. What do you want to leave uh, with people listening to this? Uh, where should they connect with you? Where do you anywhere you want to send them to learn more? Yeah, I think Twitter is definitely the best place for for now. That's where you know I've been kind of on a little vacation while my family's visiting um, right now. But that's where I'm kind of putting energy, and I will be joining on the Ship Thirty for Thirty August cohort. So I'm like. Maybe I would be able to start writing about more of these things now. Um, Amazing. But at Twitter, yeah, Aida M. Alston. Um, and yeah, definitely I would want to recommend those books and the, the podcast that we mentioned. You can put those in the, in the notes for people that have been really influential for me. I want to make sure that people can check them out also. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it was fantastic talking with you today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and putting it out there. Um, for other people, parents, people taking weird paths, unconventional paths, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, one thing I want to say is also thank you because your book, I mean, that's what I meant when I said, and when I tweeted about it the other day, it was like your book really seeing it from someone who's around my age is really powerful. It's like I, otherwise I had read stories of people who, we're kind of on, on the other side. Yeah. You know, they kind of figured it out and they're kind of writing in a more reflective way or people were talking about other people's stories, but seeing someone who's like my age, who's also being okay with trying to figure it out and still putting yourself um, out there so much when you had already had this record of being very traditional. <laughs> like, I feel like yours was even more, more even like risky in some way. Like you were already down the path and like had to, you know, really veer. Um, and putting yourself out and being so generous, like as soon as I like say, write something about your, you know, book, you're like, oh, great. We should definitely have a conversation about it. And I'm like, oh, wonderful. I'll do that. And you're like, do you want to come to the podcast? Oh my God. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> like, I really appreciate your generosity and I appreciate your sincerity. Um, and it really is, uh, it's a, a, like a voice and a, a style that I want to see more of. And so I hope that people get influenced by your, by your style and your, and your way of, um, of talking with people, making people feel comfortable also. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate that. Um, and that is it for the episode. Thank you, uh, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the pathless path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.